Hey, it's Tim here. Just to say that today's episode of Death of Other Island Cuts is an interview with the author Gareth L. Powell. And um, I accidentally unplugged my microphone while I was recording it. And so my voice is a bit echoey because I'm only recorded through his mic. I've adjusted the levels a little bit. I don't think it should affect your enjoyment too much, but I apologise for the slightly poor sound quality on my voice. His voice sounds excellent and he says a lot of great things, so I really hope you enjoy the talk with Gareth L. Powell. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and I am joined today by the author Gareth L. Powell. Um, we are actually sitting in my in my parents' house through a, a slightly bizarre set of circumstances. Um, you don't need to know that for the context of this interview, but it's a, a beautiful sunny day and we are locked inside with all the windows sealed because I have really bad hay fever. Hello, how are you? <laughs> Hi. <laughs> yeah. I've got really bad hay fever too, but uh, luckily I'm up to my eyeballs on drugs from the doctor. That's really good. That's, I'm, I went to a horse sanctuary on Friday and made the mistake of having hay fever and then rubbing my eye. So I, I managed to compound it with conjunctivitis. Oh. So uh, if I've got a slightly piratical... Um, squint uh, that gives me lends me a slightly roguish cast that is why so um there's so many things i want to talk to you about and i'm really excited to have you here and thank you for coming because uh i the the, the first time i saw you was at uh the my only convention i've ever been to nine worlds um and i i, I spotted you and i was like Oh, that's Gareth L. Powell. I really want to speak to him, and then I, I couldn't get up the uh, I couldn't quite get up the, the the nerve to go and speak to you. So, this is the most elaborate way of me getting over my social anxiety. Um, I'm talking to you. You are a uh, science fiction author, and I want to kind of go into the beginning to like get people who haven't read your work uh, up to speed. Um, how would you describe the kind of stuff you write? Um, short answer, um, monkeys and spaceships, slightly longer answer. Um, I've, I've written, uh, basically science fiction, lots of science fiction, short stories. My kind of, my first real big proper novel was The Recollection in 2011 from, uh, Rebellion, Solaris. And that was about a London cab driver who finds himself 400 years in the future. Um, which was a lot of fun. And then following that, I did a trilogy of alternate future, um, that is a future based on alternate past novels, um, about a walking, talking monkey who fly, flies a Spitfire, um, also for Solaris. And I'm currently in the middle of a trilogy of uh, sort of unapologetically space operatic novels for Titan books. I see this is the thing that I read so your first the first novel of yours that I read was um the aforementioned uh Spitfire piloting monkey which was uh Akak Macaque and <laughs> I just I I have to say I just saw the title and I part of me was that wonderful thing where I was so jealous because I was just like that is a perfect pun and a perfect character so i know that there's like a bit more i wonder if we'll just jump in here but like i know that there's a bit more to uh the genesis of that story uh could you talk about how you 
because it went through a couple of iterations before it became the sort of n- novel. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. It, originally, I wrote a short story um, about a couple going through a messy breakup, and the uh, the woman in the story was an online artist who had a, a comic strip, and I needed a comic strip character, and I went back through my old notebooks, and I tend to just play with words and rhyme words and things. And for some reason, I'd written down Akak Macak. Um, I knew what Akak was, because it's like World War One anti-aircraft fire. Um, I wasn't quite sure what a macaque was at that point. I thought it might be a marsupial or something. <laughs> but anyway, so I went back and I, I, I found this name, and I thought, oh, that's a good name for a character. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, I just looked up what a macaque was, found out it was a monkey. The whole thing fell into place. I patched two guns, Spitfire cigar the whole thing and it was just like a throwaway character and um the original title of the short story was the monkey that ate the internet um but then i changed it to akak macak because it's such a good title but then after the recollection came out from solaris the editor john oliver um spoke to me on the phone and said uh so do you have any other books you want to write and i said yes give me half an hour (laughs) so i Went away, um, and I looked up, and I had this idea for a murder mystery set on a a giant sort of world-circling Zeppelin. Um, And I knew I wanted it to be about what it meant to be human. So I had a character who's had a lot of her brain replaced with artificial neurons. I had um, a prince who doesn't realise he's a clone. Um, And, you know, I I had several characters, all who had been human but now weren't quite, or weren't sure whether they were and what I needed was a character who never had been human but now was approaching kind of from the opposite direction and there was the monkey and he immediately waltzed in took over the entire book um and even got the the title named after him so it was uh you know and that was supposed to be a standalone as well but then Solaris came back and said do you want to do a second book so I said yes and then we got to the end of that and they said well can you make this a trilogy? And I said, of course I can, um, because I left so many loose ends in the first two books, I had to wrap them all up. So it was, uh, yeah, it kind of, none of it was planned. It just kind of happened. I, because reading it, and, you know, correct me, maybe behind the, maybe behind the scenes, it was, it was much more painful, this, but I was just struck. I remember reading it and thinking, my goodness, you, there was just like, just the joy, like, of, I'm allowed to do this. I'm allowed to write about this monkey kind of flying ace. And then you get to make jokes about banana shortages in World War Two, which I was just like, oh, my goodness. But then you have, like, you have Nazis versus ninjas. You have, it's, it's, and it just feels there was something so... I want to say like there's something I sound a bit evangelical here, but there's something so liberating about reading it because I was like, oh my goodness, you are allowed to write what you you're allowed to write what you like, and 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 by virtue of that, this book hasn't existed before because it's not like anything else I've read. And I just want, how was it to to write? It was uh, it was a lot of fun. Obviously, um, I was kind of I was trying to write about like a serious subject but smuggle it in, in an action adventure. And I guess my kind of touchstones for that were um, Michael Moorcock's Jerry Cornelius books. Um, if you read those, they're, they're just great fun. He, he plays with every sort of 
alternate timeline and every bit of archaic equipment and everything he can come up with and just ha- seems to be having a great deal of fun. And that's kind of what I was aiming at. I, I, it was it was that and uh, Planet of the Apes and just every possible uh, Frankenstein as well. There's a huge lot of Frankenstein allusions in there. It was just this huge sort of bricolage of, of fun stuff that I just thought, let's put it all together and see what happens. Yeah, I wanted to... That's actually brought me on to what I was going to ask, which was that although it's... You know, when we talk about it, it's a bit like... <laughs> it's a bit. It sounds a bit like describing a dream. Like there's so much stuff in there, you can't imagine how it could all uh, fit together. But the the tone, scene by scene, is not. You know, there's like serious things happen, and people get hurt, and people get killed, and it's not hilarious for a lot of the characters who are in the scene. You know, these are world-threatening events. It's not even. You know, even you know, even the titular character has been through a hell of a lot and essentially used by other people um, and, uh, you know, kind of scarred uh, by what he's been through. I, I just wonder, what do you think the relationship is between, you know, a novel being funny or funny in places and having a meaning or a message? Can you write something humorous or with absurd elements and still have kind of serious themes? I think so, yes. I mean, first of all, I didn't set out to write a comedy novel with it. Um, I set out to write a a thriller, a sort of cyberpunky thriller with an absurd element, um, i.e. the monkey. So I didn't try to... um, I didn't try to contrive humorous situations or whatever. I let the humour come from the banter and from, like, organically from from the situations. And... So there is a lot of serious stuff in there. I think I think some people initially got kind of turned off from the novel by looking at the cover and the title and assuming it was just going to be a, a, a sort of slap... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, slapstick? Slapstick, that's it. Yeah, a slapstick um, romp, basically. Um, so I, I think that took a... Um, that may, that maybe was a bit of an own goal for me, in that it, it people didn't take it quite as seriously. Um, and as you say, there are a lot of serious elements in there. The monkey goes through a whole. I mean, it's it's a it's a kind of midlife crisis novel, really, because over the course of the three books, he goes from thinking he's young and indestructible, through to becoming vulnerable, finding a family of of people around him, and and growing up and becoming a father and. You know, it, it's this this sort of basically going from your early twenties through to your mid forties kind of evolution he goes through in a couple of years because he, he doesn't have that long a lifespan. But um, so there's there's quite a lot of serious themes in there, and uh, there's a lot of stuff about politics hidden in the in the uh, you know baddies and, and goodies duking it out here and there, um, and ethics and what have you. But it's yeah, I think it was it wasn't until it actually co-won the BSFA award in 2013 that I think a lot of people sat up and started taking it slightly more seriously. What was it <laughs> what was it like um well, I'm going this is maybe a silly question but what when you when it won you know a really really prestigious uh science fiction award um what was that like afterwards in terms of your career in terms of how 
people you would set mentioning you know, people responding to the book um what do you because you know awards are i think especially in the science fiction and fantasy uh community over the last uh sort of 10 years for people you know it's been a, they've been a sort of very vexed and uh contentious subject i but how how was it for you because like i i don't I, I can't imagine what it would be like except kind of life-changing but maybe that's not realistic or it was it was very unexpected um you know I, I was i was i was happy to have been on the short list i was i was obviously you know had my fingers and toes crossed going oh my god please 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 but i didn't really expect because it was up against a very strong field um including Anne lecky's ancillary justice which that year won the clark the hugo the nebula uh, the locus just about everything and for the first time in history, the result of the BSFA was a tie, and it was me and Anne, um, which was just amazing. To be the only book that year that basically won anything against her was... That's the thing, because they're not created equal, these awards, in that some years there might be a really strong field. I mean, it's never, it's never easy to win one of them, but like doing it on a year when there, there is you know, some really, really strong competition is amazing. It, yeah, it was astounding. I think my my um, it's all a bit of a blur. Uh, I was on crutches because I put my um, I ripped a load of muscles in my hip. Gosh. Um, so I got up these rickety stairs onto the stage on this crutch, and I think my acceptance speech uh, consisted of two words. The second of which was me. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was just astounding. I spent the rest of the evening in shock. People were coming around talking to me, and I was just sort of holding this big pink ray gun, thinking, <laughs> "Bloody hell!" So, yeah, it's um, and uh, it was in Glasgow, and I flew home. I, I, there's a whole story about getting that pink ray gun through customs in Glasgow, <laughs> which was which was you know got very unfunny very quickly. <laughs> This, this is the this is the airport where they punched a man who was on fire. Oh my. <laughs> so they were not at all amused with me trying to take a two-dimensional pink ray gun through in my hand luggage <laughs> because they thought they said if you get that out on the plane, you could cause confusion. And I was going, well, yes, a waving around a two-dimensional plastic pink ray gun would cause a lot of confusion. But I don't think it would bring the plane down. But then, you know, and I, because I had the crutches as well, and I was wearing these big steel toe-cap boots, so they said, can you take your boots off, sir? And I said, no, honestly, I don't think I can. Uh, uh, <laughs> so they, they disassembled all my crutches, and when I got on the plane, they confiscated my crutches. Crikey. So that, I, you know, if I wanted to get up and hijack the plane with this two-dimensional pink ray gun, that they had put in the hold for safekeeping. Drunk on hubris <laughs> at your new status. Yeah, so that I couldn't walk. So they had to, uh, they, they basically contained me in my seat wow. till we got back to Bristol. But when I got back, um, my wife had prepared this this big kind of, um, never mind you didn't win the BSFA, oh. we still believe in you party, and made it like a cardboard BSFA award with best dad and everything. And um, I got back and, they, and I actually had one and it was just, no, I couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. It was just, it was amazing. Um, and I think that really did start people taking me a bit more seriously. Um, and that was kind of, it wasn't like the moment I arrived, but it was just a moment like people had been aware of me. They knew who I was. They knew I'd written these two books for Solaris, been in Interzone a lot, but suddenly I'd won an award. And it was just like, 
oh, he's a he's like a face on the scene now. I think. Did it, it was, change how you thought of yourself? It gave it. I mean, obviously, there was a certain validation, um, and it made me think. Yeah, I, I can I can do this. It was a little more. Um, it's a little more confidence boosting. I've I've kind of got scalable goals because when I started out, my Everest was to get a story in Interzone. And this is back in the nineties when I was at university. I had a stack of Interzones in my college room, and yeah, I thought, me too. yeah, I thought, you know, oh, you know, the people being published there were like Charlie Stross, Stephen Baxter, Al Reynolds was just starting out, and I was like, yes, this was my Everest. I would get a story in Interzone. Um, but then once I got story in Interzone, it was like, I will have a short story collection published. And I will write a novel. So the goals are always moving. So when I won the BSA a Award, a year previously, uh, Emma Newman and I had been in a car stuck on a motorway for eight hours trying to get to Eastercon in Bradford. And uh, we were just talking about what we wanted to do. And, and at one point, Emma just turned around to me and said, to me and said, I want to win an award. Mm. I said, so do I. And then the next year, Akak Makak won, which I I honestly didn't expect it to. I thought it was a bit bit far out to be kind of judged against more serious air quotes books. Um, So that was just a huge right. I've I've achieved that goal. So what's the next goal? Hugo. (laughs) And so there's always seems to be another goal. And I think that's important because I think if I rest on my laurels for a minute, I'll become complacent. So I never feel that I've made it, and I probably won't until, you know, someone hands me a briefcase full of £100 notes and, <laughs> and, and a big gold hat or something. But, you know, so uh, it's always level up, but always be looking at the next level, I think. Do you think, I mean, is that, because that could be a kind of blessing and a curse to kind of be never satisfied. I know it's, you know, the, the, always looking at the next next goal could be very motivating, but it could also make you feel a little bit like now, okay, now I'm this award-winning science fiction author, so now I've got to be comparing myself against the kind of greats rather than recognising... Was it... uh, And this is a slightly leading question, and the answer might, of course, be no, but was it then hard to go back, sit in front of your computer with a blank page, and go, what am I going to do next with that kind of pink ray gun pointing at your head accusingly no i mean it was the the second monkey book had come out um a couple of months before that award ceremony so i already had the second one out and i was writing the third one so I, it, you know i just carried on with the third one um and that was fine it was when i got to the end of the trilogy that i had that oh hell what am i going to do next I was very, very keen to write something not involving monkeys because I I had this horrible fear that I'd get hit by a bus and the headline in Locus would be Monkey Author Dies. <laughs> and it would, that would, you know, I'd be the monkey man. I, I, um, a couple of readers uh, uh, I used to meet at conventions who kept running up to me and going, It's the monkey man. And I was going, Oh, God, what have I done? I'm never going to shake this up. I mean, in fairness, you did, if I remember rightly, um, offer that if you got a certain amount of retweets for your book that you were going to turn up to your um, reading, your book launch, in a monkey costume. So you, you there was a certain element of courting the <laughs> monkey man. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that taught me never to make a bet with the internet again. <laughs> um, but I did. I, I turned up in, in um, full monkey suit you know full head um <laughs> flight cap goggles fl- flying jacket 
pistol, the, the works. Um, it was blooming hot. Uh, but my, my publicist um, got me onto Radio Bristol uh, in the morning before the signing. And they, they insisted that even though it was radio, I turned up in full costume, which was just ridiculous. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that, that was kind of fun. That was my big farewell to the monkey. Um, but then after after that trilogy, I it was like, what am I going to write? And I I wrote what I refer to now as my kind of rebound novel. Um, it was uh, a thing called The Uncertainty Principle, which was uh, an attempt to fictionalise the uncertainty principle through um, a character with amnesia. So he... this is um, just a bit, this is Heisenberg's uncertainty. Yes. Was that right? Can you, for anyone who doesn't uh, know what it is, which includes, if I'm completely honest, me, I think I would go, oh yes, I know what that is, and then, if challenged, to explain it, couldn't. Uh, it's to do with uh, sort of quantum physics and, and stuff that I have a vague grasp on, but it, it's basically to do with, if, with an electron, if you know where it is, you don't know how fast it's going. And if you know how fast it's going, you don't know where it is, kind of. Um, you can't know those two things simultaneously. Yeah. yeah, and also that you can't separate uh, the measurement from the act of measuring. So the act of measuring defines, uh, if affects what you're measuring. Sure. Um, so that it, at any one moment, like a photon can exist as a particle or a wave, and it's not until you observe it that it becomes one or the other. It, it's, it's kind of... Oh, that mind-bending stuff yeah. that starts to make you feel a little bit like, oh my goodness, is that how reality doesn't seem very real? Yeah. So I took that on yeah. <laughs> um, to try and fi- fictionalise that through a man trying to remember his his um, who he was. And it turns out it's his story is a very Shakespearean kind of rise and fall of a, a, a tech billionaire who, who gets drawn into politics and... Uh, it seems a bit prescient now, but eventually um, uh, sort of starts setting up concentration camps and, and okay. yeah, it, it, it's it was it was unfortunately a few years ahead of its time. Um, but it, you know, I wrote the whole thing, and there was a subplot about his daughter in the far future living on a a, a weird alien um, artifact. But the whole thing never quite gelled, um, and I wasn't quite happy with it. Uh, and my agent wasn't quite happy with it, but I, I took a year just getting a load of stuff out of my system into that book, um, which is kind of why I call it my rebound novel. It's like you break up from a long-term relationship, you have a disastrous short-term relationship with somebody else, and then, then that kind of clears the palette. And that was kind of what uh, what that book was. And then, after a year of struggling with that book, I went on to write Embers of War, um, which after writing, struggling through that book, which... The Uncertainty Principle was written, I'd say, under the influence of David Mitchell. I'd just read his entire oeuvre and was trying to write very literary um, stuff, which it just didn't quite work. So I switched to Embers of War and it was just like, woof, it all, the whole book just tumbled out. It was just, it was the book I, I needed to write. It was the book I'd wanted to write. How did you deal with that? Because... I know, like, with hindsight now, you can look back and go, oh, well, you know, sometimes you need to kind of, like, get something out. Not everything you write is going to be, is, is going to work for you. You're sort of finding a way. But I, I imagine that when you're in the position of, you know, having finished a draft of um, The Uncertainty Principle, not yet knowing that you were going to 
find something that you're enjoying writing. How how did that feel then, and what kind of kept you going to the next thing? Um, the well, I I changed literary agents um, as well, so um, I yeah through. At the end of the uncertainty principle, I changed my literary agent. Got a new literary agent, so I had to come up with something to for him to sell. Yeah. So I sort of sketched out this idea for the, for the Embers of War, um, and he said, "Yeah, fine, go away and write it." So um, that kind of kept me going because I had, you know, I had a new agent. I had to get something to sell. I wanted to take my writing up up a level, um, not just in terms of sort of sales or anything, but in terms of the actual writing because. Uh, for the monkey books, I used a very stripped-down, lean kind of prose because it was talking about alternate worlds and monkeys. I, I, I sort of kept it very simple and very kind of um, not quite Chandler-esque, but very kind of uh, clear and not flowery because the character's not flowery yeah. in any way, shape or form. Um, and, you know, those books had given me a chance to do some really inventive swearing. But now I wanted to kind of let my kind of, I can't think of a right way to, to put this, let my writing talent through. So to, to write um, metaphors and phrases that, that, that were slightly more, not poetic is quite the word, maybe poetic, but you know. But just taking, I guess um, it's, it's a kind of pacing thing as well. It's like taking the opportunity to have some of those kind of like close angle shots and getting some specifics and getting some I guess like tone in there and yeah. some voice and uh which like like you say the um Akak Macaque and the sequels move at like a fairly sort of like fast clip and a lot of what we're getting is through the dialogue that that's where there's a lot of you know flavor and the rest of it is um is quite is quite clear and economical uh so you would kind of you were consciously going for a, a sort of different uh well, not maybe, yeah, a different t- style? Or? Yeah, I think so. Um, slightly less economical, um, but still moving along at a fair clip. But I just wanted the freedom to be a little more creative in my descriptions and so on. And also, it was the first novel I'd ever tried to write from a first-person perspective, which was another revelation to me, really. It was um, after struggling through the uncertainty principle, I read a very early draft of... Uh, talk Emma Newman again. She keeps popping up, but of, of her book that went on to be Planetfall, which is all first person, and I read that, and it was a bit of a revelation to me that, wow, you can write from a first person perspective and make it gripping and exciting. Um, and for some reason that had never really occurred to me. I was kind of locked into the default third person. Um, so letting the characters from Embers of War just talk was another reason I just raced through writing it because they I just had to sit down and let them talk. This is and and, and this is beautifully brings us on to a question that I, I I want to ask you because I know it'll be interesting to people listening. Um one of those characters um you know is well can you tell us a bit about Embers of War because I think you know one of those uh, characters in the story is going to is you know not the normal person who would be uh, a protagonist of a story. Uh, well, Embers takes place three years after a um, devastating war between two human factions. 
and following the war there's a, a battleship called the Trouble Dog who took part in an atrocity that ended the war but has accidentally grown a conscience and resigned her commission and she's joined an organisation called the House of Reclamation which is like um, oh what would you say it's like a, a roadside assistance for broken down spaceships or a, a rescue organisation that you know if a ship is in trouble or overdue they go out and try and find it and, and rescue the crew um, so she's trying to atone, and her crew is made up from um, ex-military personnel who were on the opposite side of the war to her. Um, but they've all now sort of renounced their political allegiances, and they're just trying to get along and make amends. And it's told from the point of view of the Trouble Dog's captain, it's a lady called Sal Constance, who lost a lot during the war, um, and from Trouble Dog herself. Um, so just to be clear, this is a, uh, a sentient uh, spaceship. Yes, yeah. she's um, her kind of neural architecture is based on some cloned human brain cells, but there's a lot of other stuff bolted in there. Um, because in this universe, the uh, humanity never discovered true AI, so they're having to they kind of have to use sort of cloned um, brain cells and, and sort of strap all their computers into that to get it to be genuinely intelligent. Um, the unfortunate bit is occasionally they develop emotions or a conscience or, or, or whatever. So she's, I think at one point she describes herself as a 14-year-old girl with all the social graces of a missile, mm. um, which which sums her up quite well, I think. is she's, she's kind of, she's a very interesting character because she has all this kind of military stuff hardwired into her. But at the same time, she's got this kind of burgeoning humanity and there's this tension in her all the time between wanting to do what she was designed to do, which is just blow the shit out of things, um, and wanting to kind of grow as a person. And she's always kind of going backwards and forwards between those two things. How, how did you discover that? Character. I don't know if discover is the right word, but it's, I, I'm thinking because you brought up David Mitchell and he writes lots of first person uh, narratives and he's talked about how he'll sort of sit down and I think like write himself a, like a letter from his characters to kind of like get into them. How did you start to discover the sort of first person voice? It's really interesting to me because I've just started trying to write something first person exactly like you for the first time and then go, oh, <laughs> Oh, this is a character, and, and sometimes it feels a bit like the character's taking over in, in a not very helpful way. Sometimes I feel like they're kind of writing, and I'm like, hey, no one's no one's going to be interested mm -hmm. in this. But how did you start to? What, what's the process? I'm thinking of listeners who are like want to experiment with, you know, a first person narrative. How do you get to know that character? I'm I'm not one of those people who sort of fills in a, a huge kind of D and D character sheet for every character in a in a book. I kind of discover my characters as I go along. So what I'll usually start with is a, a name and a vague feel for what I want them to do in the story, um, and then I'll start writing them, and they'll kind of appear as I write them. And it, especially in um, Embers of War, because it's all first person, there's like five first person characters. So I had to draw on sort of five different bits of myself, really. So Sal is the kind of the older, wearier side of myself. Um, Trouble Dog is the, you know, I, I want to smash things up, but I'm not sure how things work kind of 
side of myself. And then, the, you know, there's um, Ona Sudak, the poet, who's obviously the slightly more pretentious side of me. Um, and, and, and and then there's uh, Ashton Child, the, um, the disillusioned secret agent, who is very much me when I w- was in the process of leaving my last job. So it's, there's these, oh, you kind of draw from your own, bits of yourself really um do you and do you think because n- now you're saying of oh, this is this part of me but when you were starting off with the characters is that connection with the part of you something that you make kind of after you get to know them you go oh hello this is oh this is me then or do you actually sit down and go are you consciously trying to model it after a bit of yourself uh, not consciously but I think you do draw on pieces of yourself as you're writing and as you write the character starts to come through and you start to hear their voice and you start to and, and they sort of appear on the page and that's part of the the fun part of, of writing the creating and the um, it's also how I approach plot I, I don't write the entire plot out before I start because I, I sort of draw a sketch map which has like the post office and a church spire and a, whatever but all the ground in between is, is terra incognito because I like to discover where we're going as, as as I'm writing because it's all about the creation. If um, I did make a disastrous attempt to uh, write a thriller at one point where I got an Excel spreadsheet, got f- 50 boxes, each box was going to be a 2,000 word chapter, um, and then I wrote in every single box what was going to happen and sat down and just couldn't write the novel at all because I'd told the story um, in an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> And it just felt like typing. There was no... I, I was looking at like six months of just following this plan and it just felt like the most boring, turgid thing I could possibly do for six months um, because there was no joy of creation. There was no diving in and, and seeing what would happen. It was like you were ghostwriting for yourself. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. It was... it. it the, yeah, the story was just all there and all I had to do was type it up and that was just... Pff, that's not what I got into this game to do. Yeah, so do you... That's... So you'll fi- you feel that like you're in your experience when you're writing the scenes that come out most in- that are easiest to write but also are most interesting to you and are the most exciting are ones where you know what the characters want and you know a bit about the universe but you don't have necessarily a specific plan about how they're going to deal with this problem. With. Yeah, I usually I usually have an ending in mind. Um, so I'll be working towards that ending and getting characters into position for that ending. But along the way, I'll throw them curveballs. Um, and occasionally they'll throw me curveballs as well. And, and that's part of the fun. A lot of time what I'll do is I'll get a chapter and I'll just write the dialogue first, sort of just like transcribing a conversation. Because then the um, the conversation picks up a natural rhythm if you're just writing one bit back and forth. And that reveals the character you know that reveals character that reveals motivation um and it gives you a clue for what they'll do next because you can say at one point you think maybe i want them to go north but the way they're talking you think oh god so they're never going to go north one of them wants to go south so you'll have to kind of change it around and they'll go south and then i fill in all the description afterwards but but that kind of gives the scenes a, a, a rhythm and gives the characters voices come through that's such a great... I've never, ever thought of that piece of advice before. Try writing the dialogue first. And, of course, then you're able to just kind of... Oh, I guess it, it's almost like you just get to observe them almost and, and kind of move at the pace they're moving. Yeah. And then later you can come back in and because I sometimes spend a whole morning where I haven't got through a scene because I I don't know what the name of a certain type of 
sprocket on something is and then I'm looking it up and I can't find it and then lose all that writing time instead of and then you uh, presumably you sometimes sketch out the scene and get those bits of dialogue beats and go well they're going to go south so I don't have to research church cathedral spires for this bit that was going to be in the north because that scene is no longer happening yeah yeah absolutely and sometimes when you're writing like a conversation which can take place over like three pages um, it takes five minutes to read, but it might there might have been like a month between page one and page three. Um, and so it's very difficult to maintain a kind of conversational rhythm through that period of time because you lose. So just writing the dialogue out straight away, you've got that rhythm and then you can go back and, and structure it. Oh, that's, 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 I'm definitely going to try that. That's, a, that's excellent. Have you got any tips for people who are listening who maybe want to find a character? you know, find their character or find that voice or that, because, ah, this is what I was thinking of. You talked about, like, the characters taking over, and I, and authors often talk about that, but we, it's almost like taken as a, because we know what it feels like, I often hear the conversation and people go, yeah, yeah, and it kind of, it moves on, and then for people who haven't had that experience, it seems like this rather strange, almost slightly precious thing, you know, oh, the characters took over, but it does happen, yeah. And I, how do you know when that's happening? Because it seems really, to someone who has, it hasn't happened to, it seems dramatic, almost disturbing, right? What is that? It's, it's, not, it's not so much they take over. They don't start sort of dictating to you. You're not kind of there automatically writing down the voices and the, the spirits or anything. It's more being true to your characters. Um, because if you're true to them, you will find some of the situations you've put them in or some of the things you want them to do they wouldn't do so they, they don't so much take over it's is that you realize that that by forcing them to do something to serve the plot you're not really um you're making them act out of character and that's that's you know that's massively obvious when tv shows do it um you know for instance you know joey suddenly falls in love with rachel for no reason at all because they've run out of ideas so they make the characters do something completely out of character just um and audiences don't buy it because of that. So the most extreme example I have is with Akak Makak, the monkey. Um, where they, he's sitting down, they're, they're having a briefing, the characters are discussing the situation, and he just says, you know, yap, 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 shut up, let's go do something. Because, you know, he's, he's an enemy of um, explanation, but he, he would not have sat there patiently in a briefing room chatting he would grab his guns and go and kick the shit out of something um so i have to be true to the character in that way so he a lot of situations i had envisioned he ruined because he wouldn't stand there bantering he would just shoot them yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. um you know he, he you know if he wanted to find out the enemy's plans he would probably just cut one of their feet off and, and <laughs> you know bite them really savagely and so i had to kind of i had to be true to him um and then structure the book around what he would do rather than what I wanted him to do. Do you think that challenged you to make the plot better and more in inventive? Because like, it, because what you're describing is cl like a classic thing, you know, you mentioned D&D &D earlier, but where someone has a plan where they've planned a D&D &D session and they want to have like the evil wizard monologue for three minutes explaining what their plan is while the players kind of watch. Yeah. And of course... And then a player says, oh, I'm going to just try and stab him. And, and, and you go, you, well, you can't do that yet because I want to... And, and it, that's a classic thing where... But of course you wouldn't 
listen to someone monologue and yeah. you're the kind of character who gets things done. Um, how And you experience that as a certain resistance, I assume, as you're writing. You don't... It's not that the... You know, when you're writing, you do you start writing a scene one way and then go, uh, or... Yeah, you, I think you can tell when you're forcing it. It's very... In, in Embers of War, there, there's a scene which really kind of brought out the characters of Sal and, and, and Trouble Dog when um, they've been to a planet and some people on the planet have tried to hijack the ship. Um, and, of course, they're completely outclassed because this, you know, even though she's had a major weaponry taken away, she's still a sentient warship. She can still, you know, and this is a small frontier town and the guys with, like, pea shooters trying to hijack the ship. Um, so Sal is very, very reluctant to harm these people. Um, whereas the trouble dog just wants to level the entire town, um, and together they come up with a compromise because I, you know, I, I could have just written like a, a, you know, they take off and she goes, yeah, nuke the whole place, and let's, but Sal would never have done that. That's not who she was. So it was very much part of her journey that, I've, um, she makes a compromise with the trouble dog, and it's one she's not comfortable with, but it's better than what the Trouble Dog had in mind. And the Trouble Dog's made a compromise. And I guess she kind of feels a bit better about it as well because she's broken a pattern of her old behaviour, which would have been extremely excessively violent. So it's it's staying true to what the characters want, um, especially if the characters want different things as well, that that kind of bring the, the narrative to life because I, I could have just written a... You know, uh, um, a sort of Star Warsy narrative where they will just jump, up, jump in the ship and wise crack and shoot off. But instead, there's a moral dilemma, and um, they have to really discover who they are. Uh, yeah, because I imagine when you have ideas for sort of set pieces where you've got like this, uh, you, you've got the ship and you've got your various characters, and you can picture in your head immediately some cool things that they could do in some cinematic moments. And then there must be moments where the like you say, where the character kind of denies you the ability to go for what feels to you like a cool scene. And, um, but you're saying that if you do that, if you follow them honestly, you might not get the kind of cinematic cliche of, of, of spectacle, but you might get something ultimately more interesting. Is that... that I think you get something more authentic um and i think also that with um going for the big spectacle there's a danger of going for the big fat cliche as well um so it's uh yeah i mean a lot of kind of action scenes are you know we've all seen die hard we've all seen star wars we've all seen, you know we, we have this kind of language cinematic language of, of kind of wisecracking hero action scene and we know the beats, we know what's going to happen. Um, but being true to your characters and avoiding those cliches or letting them avoid them throws up new questions and new situations and new answers, which, which kind of add to the originality more. I think, yeah, so I've never thought about it like that before, but actually having a character being a person um, can get in the way of when you don't notice that you've kind of fallen into the easy beats of something that's familiar but isn't, but it's going to be familiar to your readers as well, yeah. right? Yeah, it's it, you know, um, in in the Macaque books, there's uh, uh, the main 
one of the main protagonists is uh, Victoria Valois, who's a journalist. Um, and she gets up to some James Bondy type things later in the book, but it doesn't come naturally to her. Um, whereas, you know, I didn't just want to um, write just like this ass-kicking super female agent. She's she's a journalist and she's kind of um, having to go through a lot and to understand a lot to get to, you know, to get things done and to follow the monkey. Um, it's like well, in, in the in the first two Alien movies, you know, otherwise known as the good Alien movies, there's... Um, I'm going to get... Gonna, yeah, I know. I, 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 I don't think if anyone, if anyone wants to write in with <laughs> a, a defence of uh, Alien 3 or um, any of the later ones, if, if you want to, that's fine. I will happily listen to them. But you just know, and you'll know in your heart that you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Ripley is a an officer on a, a flying uh, oil refinery. She's not... Um, Vasquez, for instance, from the second one, who is a, a, a rock-hard space marine. Um, she, she's she's an officer, and she you can see her struggle as she goes through fear and anger and uncertainty, and, you know, she doesn't just um, light a cigar and, and click a shotgun and go, right, let's go out there and kick some ass. She, she's... You, you're, you're with her because you can see her vulnerability. You can see the process she has to go through to get there. But unlike aliens, is, 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 is it's kind of fascinating because she doesn't have to be there. She doesn't have to be there. She's cho- she's chosen it, and there are various moments where she. There, in fact, there's plenty of moments where she could save her own ass easily, um, and she doesn't because. And she goes to do the harder thing, something she's not particularly comfortable with, because there's a child she wants to save, yeah, or or Jonesy in the uh, a cat that she wants to. Yeah, but that that is um, that brings up a different side because it's it's she's going back to to get Newt because of a kind of a maternal thing because at the beginning of the film she finds out her her real life daughter aged and died while she was in cryosleep so she's got this void in her life and she goes back to to rescue newt because of that and that's kind of that's a more believable human journey than if she was just you know intergalactic troubleshooter who's come down here to kick some ass um i think that's kind of the difference between alien and predator very similar films um both end in a nuclear explosion both involve monsters and shooting, but in one, Arnie's got rippling biceps. He's just down here to kick some ass and get to the chopper. So you don't really take him seriously as a character. Whereas with with Ripley, she's much more human. And you do kind of follow that journey with her. Yeah, she's definitely been thrown into that situation. But also, it's not. It's not. I, I'd say like it's not just that it's more realistic. It's that it's more. It's also more impressive as well because she doesn't. You know, as it turns out, the. Uh, the uh, marines with all their training are not don't I, I don't have she's the actually she's the one with the training you know yeah. that's 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 her, how she's introduced to us she's here is it like she's here as an advisor or something is like yeah. the one little throwaway line they give her but it's so um yeah i i think you're right and i think it's that movie the two alien movies are much more interesting for having people out of their depth who can't just come out with like one line although Vasquez for completely different reasons yeah can but we see that she's a human being but she chooses the heroic route but it's um 
it's ter- it's terrifying and, and and for that reason she can't back down for exactly the same reason this is what that film does so well is it spends the first hour introducing all the characters so by the time they meet the aliens you you kind of care about all of them and you know who they all are um they're not just faceless grunts by the time the the, the, the monsters appear. They're, they're, they're actually, they've all got their foibles, they've all got their characteristics. Um, so each death at the end feels earned in some way or feels like a loss. Whereas, you know, if if the film had started, they land on the planet, they open the first door and there's full of aliens and they're just faceless grunts getting munched, you, it would have been harder to care. And at the end, it very much comes down to the military can't solve this problem. What it comes down to is one mother against another using kind of, you know, Ripley burns a few eggs and, and you know, it's there's that whole scene where they're staring at each other and you can see the understanding of, like, this is one mother protecting her brood and another mother protecting her brood and it becomes that. Whereas in Predator, it's one two-dimensional muscly character facing off another two-dimensional character and their only motivations seem to be to want to blow the shit out of each other. And, you know, while it's a fun film, um, it still doesn't have that depth of characterization. No, it, it, you're absolutely right. And, of course, in, in Aliens as well, it, it's, you know, there's you can, you can read it that the aliens are, are not really the ultimate baddies. They're kind of like a force of nature, but it's, you know, you've got this other kind of like force of the Wayland Yatani uh, corporate branch who are the real, you know, that's what Ripley's great line in it. She says, mm. she says, she says, you know, I, you know, Burke, I don't know, uh, I don't know who's worse, uh, you or, or the aliens, at least they don't fuck each other over for a percentage. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's that, that, like you say, there's that moment of recognition that can only come from a character um, acting out of uh, you know their own restrictions and yeah. their own and, and acting realistically in that scene. Um, that's so uh, the final, the sort of thing I want to get on to uh, as much as I can talk about <laughs> favorite movies or don't. But it's a really su- suggestive and useful uh, um, comparison. Um, I've seen you sort of on. I want to talk about uh, you on Twitter a little bit just because I I, I know you uh, you have your uh, a Patreon as well, which um, I'd yeah. like you to talk about in a second. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to go check it out. But I've seen you on Twitter, and I think you're the only author I've seen do this. There may be others, but just posting on Twitter and saying hello, like are there if there's anyone any writers out there who'd like some advice, uh, you know, I've got a, a, a free twenty minutes. Um, do message me if there's anything I can help with. Which to me is just incredibly nice, especially on Twitter, which is, you know, occasionally can be quite an unpleasant place. It's so, it's such a lovely and generous thing. And I just wanted to ask you about giving creative writing advice. And, but, but the first thing I want to say is, why do you do that? <laughs> well, it, it, it goes back to, um, I think, the last general election and um, the whole Brexit thing about two years ago. Um, Twitter became pretty much a, just a place of people yelling at each other. Um, it was incredibly stressful and depressing to just go on there and see my timeline, everybody yelling, everybody miserable, everybody fighting. Um, and I thought, oh, I've had enough of this. So I thought I'm going to start just being positive. Um, and, just, and I didn't just want to kind of just 
start tweeting inspirational quotes. So I just thought, you know, I'm going to do, what can I do to make Twitter better? I can try and help people with writings. That's what I know about. So, you know, I, I pushed down my imposter syndrome a bit and just said, you know, anyone need a new character name? Is there anything I can help with? And people responded. Um, and so I've been doing this for about two years now and people have responded very, very positively. And, you know, the more positivity I put out and the more I help people, the kind of more positivity I seem to get back, the more people are, are, are kind of um, interested in my books and, and, and supporting me on Patreon and things like that, which is, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's almost like you get out of Twitter what you put into it in some ways. Um, so I don't go on there fighting or arguing or you know i've got tremendous respect for matt haig yeah yeah um he uh author of the humans and and other books um he, he suffers with he does a lot to raise um awareness of depression and so on um but he does tend to put himself in harm's way by making sort of sweeping political statements or, 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 or and so on which obviously he gets the trolls back on him and and he has a very argumentative experience whereas I kind of I, I kind of don't do that I think people who know me kind of know my views on things and I don't feel the need to sort of try and convince the rest of the internet that they're wrong because I don't think anyone has ever changed their mind after reading a Twitter argument I don't just don't think it happens I think it's just completely self-defeating behavior to argue on Twitter so I just try and help people and it's, it seems to have gone really, really well. And so I just keep doing it. And um, it's uh, inspired me to write my own um, book about how to write. Yes, this is what I was going to ask you yeah. about next. Which is, it's coming out next year from Luna Press. It's called About Writing, which isn't the most original of titles, but it's pretty much the most descriptive. Um, and it's just a series of articles about things I have found out being a writer over the last 10 years. And it's not... You know, it doesn't go into uh, grammar or spelling or, so, you know, any of that stuff. It assumes you know all that. It's subtitled A Field Guide for Aspiring Authors. And that's kind of what it is. It's notes I've taken in the field, um, things I've discovered as I've been out there, stuff I never got taught on a creative writing course, but that I found out the hard way. So hopefully that's going to be uh, a big use for people. And it's stuff that's come through the workshops I've done as well at university that students have asked me questions that I've, I've answered. So I'm going to, like, on that subject, I'm going to jump into uh, some most broad possible <laughs> thing, which is, like, what is the thing that you see when you're talking to writers, when you're talking to people uh, in workshops, when you're talking to people on Twitter? What do you think is the thing that people most, that you find writers most struggling with? Uh, the one... Th what, I've done a lot of creative writing workshops at various universities with, with students who are pretty much always incredibly bright, incredibly enthusiastic, really intelligent, well-read, but a lot of them seem to struggle with the idea of what is a publishable book because they will come up with these ideas that are so kind of you know, I, I want to write a fantasy trilogy about a big brass hen um, that's based on my grandpa's World War One experience. That blah, blah, blah. And it'd be this long, big book about this vampires warring with antelopes or whatever, and, and there'll be this huge... And, you, and you, you sit and listen and smile, and you think, there isn't any way in hell 
that book is ever going to sell to a publisher. It's just, it, it it doesn't sort of transcend genre. It kind of minces two or three of them together into a hamburger. And it's, um, you know, and so you, you, you kind of, that's the most difficult thing, I think, is, you know, I would never want to discourage someone from writing that their 40 part epic that they want to do, you know, about um, sexy werebears or whatever. But at the same time, I just want to go, look, you need to kind of focus and focus down on onto a, you know, if you just want to write 40 books and leave them in your closet, that's fine and more power to you and enjoy it. But if you want to write with the idea of a pub, getting either getting published by a publisher or self-publishing and having somebody read your book, focus on a bit more of a, you know, uh, um, simpler idea because I get these them to explain their book and it takes them half an hour and that's what I try and say is if you can't explain your book two sentences then you need to simplify it um, and that's that, that's something I've noticed across the board do you think because do you think that's do you think sometimes people can uh, sometimes a book's idea because I've definitely a question I asked my agent once, which was really useful, was when you talk about this book to other people, what what do you say it's about? And that really helped me because I heard it back and was like, oh, okay, that's what it's cool. Okay, now I know how to explain it to people who don't yeah. know. Because sometimes I guess being inside your book, it's a bit like being halfway through writing a PhD and you have no idea what the important parts are and go, well, it's a person who um, she, has, uh, she has brown shoes and uh, she's about uh, six foot one, and you can, it's, it can be really difficult to know what's... Because your pitches for your own books, I mean, which don't sound like elevator pitches, but when you dis- talk about what Ember's Award is, when you talk about Akak Makak, you, you're really good at just getting to the meat of what the story is. I, th- I think um, a lot of writers, when they, they, they set out, they kind of, they assemble a plot... Um, and they assemble, uh, uh, you know, characters, and they get, they get, and they start writing this book, but they don't know what the book is actually about. And when you ask them what's this book about, they tell you what happens in it, um, and you have to find what the book is about. Is it about love? Is it about loss? Is it about what it means to be human? Is it about, you know, uh, pride coming before a fall? Is it about power corrupting? What is this book about? Um, for instance, Embers of War, it's about grief, it's about um, PTSD, and it's about redemption. That's what that book's about. And it's about friends, and it's about gathering at Ertzat's family around you. Um, so I could go on for like half an hour about what happens in the book, but that's what the book's about. And I think you have to have a very clear idea of that in order to in order to make the book pay off because if you if it's about for instance power corrupting then you have the character arc you have the the, the rise and fall of the, the the main character um and it just helps you get a clearer idea of the book if you know what it's about at that level um i found um blake snyder's book save the cat very useful for that it's about screenwriting but he talks about writing a log line for the script before you start writing the script saying what is this about and he said the log line should contain 
who the hero is, what they want, uh, what they're going to have to struggle over, who the antagonist is, and how they win at the end in a sentence or two sentences. And that really focuses your mind because he said, you know, it's got got to be, it's about a man, woman, who, this. And so, for instance, it would be... um, Die Hard would be something like, it's about a vacationing cop trying to win his ex-wife back who gets caught in a building when terrorists take over and has to fight his way out. <laughs> which sounds, which is awesome. And actually that bit about him trying to win his ex-wife back, that's what, one of the things that makes it actually, the, we're engaged with the, the process, right? That's exactly Snyder's point. You have to put that, the emotional stakes into that description so that we immediately know who this person is and why we want to follow them. Um and yeah, it, that that really helped me because it really helped me sort of hone down my thinking. So when I'm I'm thinking about writing a book, what's this book about? Who's the main character? What do they want? All in a sentence. And once you get that sentence right, it, it clarifies your thinking about so much of the rest of the so, book. So because that sentence is just, from what you're saying, that is not just about you. Because I think people shy away from it because they feel like they're being, they're turning into door-to-door salesmen. They're being kind of cheesy. But you're saying it's not just about you being able to like, so you can kind of like accost agents while they're trying to get home in the rain and say, yeah. hey, I've written a story. About, but it actually, it helps you focus about what your st- is important in your story so you know what the promises you're making to the reader so you can make sure you pay off on that so you don't start at one story and then end having fulfilled none of those threads and what the reader was hoping to find out about, you abandon that character halfway through, right? Is that the kind of, that it helps you... It, it, it feeds back into the actual what the story ends up being about. Exactly. That yeah. It, it clarifies your thinking. You don't end up doing. You know, in Moby Dick, starts off following one character. He gets out to see. Mavel discovers Captain Ahab, and so his previous main character just gets washed overboard in the next chapter <laughs> and never seen again. So it kind of if he put some thought into that, and it's about a captain seeking vengeance on a whale. Um. That would have clarified his thought right down. He could have gone straight from the beginning there with... And immediately, when it's about a captain seeking vengeance on a whale, although that, that line, people might think that's a bit silly, but also it, that encapsulates how how futile the thing is. Because it's a whale! Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, come on! This is like this poor whale. It's like... It's, it's, it, 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 it immediately that contains the seeds of of what kind of story it's going to be, right? Yeah. And I mean, you, 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 if you get halfway through and think, actually, this is about something different, you can change that. But unlike Mavel, you have to go back and rewrite the first bit and kind of write out your expendable character you no longer need and just change it. So you can, it's not it's not carved in stone, but it's just a, a way of of focusing your mind, which which I found incredibly helpful. It, it leads to slightly less meandery books in a lot of ways, slightly less fluffy characters. It, I don't mean fluffy as in adorable, I mean fluffy as in not quite in focus. Yeah, because yeah. it's funny to me that now, you know, we've been talking about funny books and with absurd premises and stuff, but when you actually describe what Moby Dick is about and Captain Ahab's character, it is it is quite humorous in some ways you know there's elements of it where it's that's quite funny but it's not in the book it's not play it's not play for laughs but you can see why any any character i suppose who has an obsession has a has a 
there's a humorous element to that. Someone who is fanatical, there's something funny about it. I should say uh, the Blake Snyder book, Save the Cat, that of course, that title is a reference to Alien and uh, Ripley heading back to save the cat and that being a reason why we're invested. So I'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes uh, as well. Um, have you got, I, I want to say before we sort of um, uh, wrap up, and thank you so much for your time. I feel so enthused and on fire. Mm-hmm. It's just a real, real great privilege to get to speak to you. But um, have you got like a kind of quick and dirty tip for, because I know most people listening now are going to be working on something, whether they admit it to themselves or not, you know, they're going yeah. to be working on something or writing. Have you got a, a quick and dirty tip that, you, that has been useful to you in your writing that you think could help other people? Yeah. Um... Never tell anybody your story before you finished writing it. I found that that very useful, and I've known some people who talk a brilliant game but never actually finish writing anything because they sit there and they tell you the entire plot of their huge projected four hundred thousand word epic, and everyone says that's brilliant, and they something inside them relaxes and they feel that they've told the story and they've got the feedback and they've got the validation and now they just can't get around to actually writing the book because that storytelling impulse is gone and it's expired and so they haven't got the drive to kind of that that secret drive you have when you're working on something god i can't wait for people to read this and you're typing away it keeps you going because you're telling the story whereas it's like if you've told everybody already you've told the joke and everyone's laughed and now all that's left is the explaining and it's yeah that i think for beginning writers would be one of my biggest tips i just want to underscore that as well is that i i heard recently and i'll 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 look to see if i can find a link online but i was reading like a study that they'd done confirming that exact thing that when people described uh explained goals that they were going to achieve and, and and explained them in great sort of detail about the thing they wanted to do actually it triggers a I think like a dopamine hit in the brain that gives a kind of that gives a kind of substitute uh satisfaction of having done the thing that made it statistically less likely that the person would then go and do that thing now of course we're told to kind of like oh have big dreams and, and follow your dreams but that seems like a really useful thing that you're saying don't uh don't buttonhole uh, your your patient best friend to tell them your entire story because um, and of course it may change as well like you say yeah. that also kind of like slightly calcifies it and, and what you found is writing a little bit by the seat of your pants and these characters still being alive and capable of going in ways you didn't suspect yeah. um, is, is something that stops you from feeling like it's this set of homework that you're working through this this Excel spreadsheet and in fact you're a kind of archaeologist digging up these ruins and going well I think I know that this is a temple but I I didn't expect there to be this skeleton in here suddenly yeah yeah that's exactly it I think that's uh, what Stephen King mentions in his book on writing as well is he likens it to paleontology where you're scraping the dust away from the skeleton of the story to find out what shape it is as opposed to you know starting with the skeleton and and just explaining it um so just to finish off, could you? I know you run a uh, Patreon where people can support what you do. Um, would you be able to? I'll put a link to it, but could you just give people a little idea of what's on there and what people can sign up to if they want to support your work? Sure. Um, well, if anyone's not familiar with Patreon, it's a site by where artists and writers can um, 
gain funding from supporters in, in sort of small increments, a dollar a month here or there, but it adds up um, and gives them a bit more artistic freedom. Um, I'm on there because um, advances are, are few and far between and don't stretch very far when you have a, a mortgage and you need to eat. Um, but it's I've got on there a series of rewards, so you can come in and you can pay a dollar a month, which is about 70p, um in in british money and for that you get access to articles blog posts deleted scenes um stuff from i'm working on all that sort of thing um and then there's slightly higher levels for uh five pound and over i do a monthly uh fiction serial that you can that you can follow um and then there's there's, there's higher levels if you pay 50 pounds a month um you know I'll, I'll send you a copy of every book i publish during your your patronage signed and, and what have you um but i also run mentorships through there as well um whereas people can pay 20 dollars a month um and i'll critique a thousand words of their fiction each month and feedback and talk about it with them so it's uh that's i mean that's that's pretty great i would say anyone who's um listening i'll put a link in the uh, show notes, but can you? What's the what's the web address? Just in case people are sitting there and they can't wait and want to type it in now. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll put a link in the I'll put a link in the show notes. It, it's it's yeah. fine. So if, if people, if you're on listening to this on SoundCloud, if you just click the info thing at the bottom, or you go on my website timklepper.co.uk, uh, under this episode, um, there'll be a, a link, and you can just you'll just be able to click yeah. straight through to that. A ditto with um, your Twitter uh, handle, but is it? at Gareth L. Powell? It is, yes. Oh, great, so people can follow you on there and, and keep up to date with things, and that will have links to your website as well, presumably? So. Yeah, uh, you, my website, www.garethlpowell.com, has links to Patreon and everything else, Twitter and, and so on. Um, fantastic. Now, uh, just before we go, uh, the final thing I want to say is, um, what is the... So there's a new... When's the next, uh, the second one in the Embers of War trilogy due out? Fleet of Knives comes out in February next year, and then the third one. Fleet of Knives is such an awesome title. Uh, the, <laughs> I have to give a tip of the hat to Adrian Tchaikovsky for that one. He suggested that title. Um, the the uh, third book, Light of Impossible Stars, that comes out February twenty twenty. So wow! It's every every February, um, and uh, yeah, there might be some other stuff out in the interim as well. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for all your great advice. And um, I wish you all the best uh, in the future with your books. Thank you. And everyone listening, uh, if you want to uh, share the episode and uh, well, even if you don't, please do. But um, uh, you can share on Facebook and Twitter and um, please subscribe on SoundCloud and uh uh, uh, subscribe and, and leave us a review on iTunes. I know these things are, are, are slightly tedious and you hear them all the time, but I would love it if you did. Um, and of course, you can follow me in the usual places. Thank you very much for listening. Have a lovely week with your writing. Do some of those things you've heard now. God's given you a very good piece of advice and you want to listen to that because it's going to make your life a lot better. Okay, take care, everyone. Bye bye. <laughs>